Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the US what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app hello my friends and welcome to the here we are podcast great episode today with neuroscientist chris thompson i just want to quick um plug a few shows. I don't do this very often, but I have a lot of fun uh, shows coming up and a lot of independent shows uh, coming up as well. So I just wanted to make sure that uh, everyone was aware of what I was doing. Um, I think I mentioned once or maybe twice before I'm I'm doing, uh, well, I have a regular club act and sometimes at clubs I'm doing two different sets and then also i have a separate act completely um, all about psychedelics called this is your shane on drugs and if you go to my website if you go to shanemoss.com and check out the schedule um, you can see the, the the title is this is your shane on drugs for those shows uh, it's mostly indie venues or sometimes sunday nights um, at clubs so go and check out everything coming up i'm in uh I'm in Washington, D.C., Point Pleasant, New Jersey, uh, Albany, New York, New York City, um, by the way, Gotham Comedy Club in New York City coming up on October 27th. Um, if you're in New York City, please uh, help, me out, help me out and support that show. That's a really big, fun club, and I'd love to fill it. Uh, Tacoma, Washington coming up, one of my favorite clubs, Louisville, Kentucky. I'm doing a whole big string of one-nighters around the southeast. I'm going through Knoxville, Tennessee, Chattanooga, Pensacola, Florida, um, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, and I'm, I'm adding a few others as well um, soon. I'm, I'm just waiting for the links to go up on that, in, including Birmingham, maybe Atlanta. We'll see. Um, anyway, Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, uh, coming up next year. Uh, also in December, I haven't added to my schedule. I'll try to get these up. I'm waiting on the links, but I'm going to be in Rochester, Minnesota, near my hometown. 
um, the week before Christmas. New Year's week, I'm going to be in Milwaukee. I'm, uh, so if you are in Milwaukee and you don't have New Year's plans, you may want to check that out. And on the 1st, January 1st, I'm going to be doing my This Is Your Shane on Drugs show there. So you can see that's one of, uh, one of the many clubs. You could see both of my shows for any uh, super fans out there. And, uh, and, and you can always... You can always send me a message, especially if you're a listener, a regular listener to this program. Um, I'll always do what I can to help you out. I can sometimes get complete comps um, for shows, some of the independent shows that I'm doing. That's a little harder to do just because of the structure of the deals. But never hurts to ask. Write me on Twitter. uh, Go to uh, the herewearepodcast.com website and uh, click on ask a scientist that goes directly to me um go on go on to my facebook fan page i have two facebook pages you may have noticed one is a regular profile page that i don't use at all but is necessary to run my fan page um i'm not going to get into why i have two separate ones it's because facebook's a pain in the butt i wish i only had to have one and um, basically you're not allowed to have more than 5,000 friends but um, anyhow uh, that's all and then coming up next year I, I have a whole big um, string of shows around the, around the south since I'm since I'm plugging dates so I'm gonna be in Wichita I'm gonna be in Oklahoma City Tulsa Oklahoma uh, this is all in the beginning of the year Little Rock Arkansas uh, Dallas, Texas, Fort Worth. Um, I'll be in Plano, Texas. I'm, I'm trying to line up a bunch of one-nighters around all of those areas as well. I uh, haven't, haven't got to work on that yet, but a whole bunch more to come. So please, uh, please go and, and sign up for my mailing list, which I never send out mailing lists, <laughs> but sign up anyway for when I do get around um, to pulling my life together. Uh, you certainly don't have to worry about me sending you constant email blasts. I think I've sent out one ever. Um, but I'm, I'm going to hope to uh, start to do that uh, once a month or once every other month or something like that. So that'll help. Uh, make sure and follow me on Twitter and Facebook. All that good stuff. Um, and I'm sorry for this five-minute-long introduction. Uh, I don't do that to you guys very often. Usually there's not even an introduction, so uh, forgive me. Um, uh, but if, if you want to support the podcast, which I, I go out of my pocket to pay for, um, then please, if you even if you're not in any of those areas, if you know anyone in any of those areas, it helps me out so much. If you guys can spread the word for me, it's easy to go onto my Facebook or my Twitter and retweet things or share things and, uh, and, and spread the word. So that helps me out so much. It's nice if I can eventually get people, uh, rather than a random comedy club audience, I can get uh, people like you guys all coming out to my shows because then I can uh, talk about more in-depth stuff rather than having to do um, easier jokes uh, that are a little more highly accessible for random drunk bachelor and bachelorette parties and and uh, and people's birthdays and all that. Um, so so anyhow, uh, that would mean a lot to me. You know, obviously I'm, I'm trying to uh, build up my career more and more and. 
anything you can do to help would be terrific. So thank you guys for listening and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I came down to San Diego to talk to uh, a postdoctoral fellow at the Scripps Research Institute. Uh, Dr. Chris Thompson <laughs> is actually uh, a, a friend of a, of a new friend of mine, um, uh, a comedian, Hank Thompson, who I talked with after the show and, and told me he listened to my podcast and then told me um, that his brother uh, is a scientist. And I was like, well, that makes my life easy. Uh, why don't you put me in touch with him? So, uh, so thanks for uh, joining me, Chris. Thanks Absolutely. for the tour of the lab. Sure. It's very yeah. interesting. We're going to get into that in a bit. Um, why don't you give me a, a little breakdown of, uh, of your history, how, mm-hmm. how you ended up here? Sure. Yeah. So let's see. I uh, started off uh, in Illinois, where I grew up outside of Chicago, and I went to the University of Illinois at Champ- Champaign-Urbana for my undergraduate. There I studied ecology, ethology, and evolution with a focus on evolution and animal behavior. Um, I worked with Gene Robinson there, who is kind of the honeybee guru um, for how honeybees go through the different stages of their behavior as they age. And with him, when I was there, I worked on learning and memory tasks in honeybees. So I got very interested in the neural mechanisms that regulate behavior. And that drew me towards neuroscience. So then I ended up doing my PhD. Uh, now I'm curious mm-hmm. about oh, sure. bees. Oh, okay, well, let's talk about bees before uh, we move on. <laughs> uh, I love, yeah, I, I love I, talking about I bees. I know it's not your area anymore. I, but, no, it's, but, so, so you st- bee aging yes, and, right. and its effect on learning and right. memory? Yeah. So It is well known that bees have different tasks that they do. So there are bees that do in-hive tasks. Those are nurses. They take care of the little larvae that are in there. They'll take care of the queen. They'll take care of inside hive tasks. And then there are foragers. They're the ones that go out of the hive and go collect nectar and pollen. Now, um, the bees, the way they divide up tasks, it's called age polyethism. So poly, many, ethism behaviors. So, and it's dependent upon age. The in-hive tasks are done by the young bees. So they're the nurses. And as they get to a certain age... Then they start foraging, and so they'll leave the hive and do outside hive tasks. So the Robinson Lab, they studied that phenomenon in great detail, looking at it, everything from the changes in gene expression all the way up to changes in behavior, as well as the neural mechanisms underneath that. I was doing learning and memory tasks with bees, okay? So what we were doing is, uh, you know, the the foraging tasks that bees have to do, it's dependent upon uh, the odors that, that flowers provide. And if a flower has nectar at a given time, the bee will associate that odor of the flower with a reward. And we were looking at um, our nurses able to do those kinds of things as well. So, and we saw that there were actually some distinct differences that uh, between nurses and how they learn to associate an odor with a reward versus when they're foragers. So, foragers learn to associate a particular odor with a reward uh, much faster than nurses do. 
but then they also don't extinguish that behavior very quickly as well. So once they've associated that in their mind, they will keep that association even after you've removed the reward. Whereas nurses, uh, they will learn that there's a reward associated with an odor, and then once you remove the reward, they will kind of forget pretty quickly. Hmm. Once you so remove the reward, the the young kids have a more flexible, yeah, they're more exactly. open minded, right? And, and the whole reason why we're looking at that is because there are these changes that happen in the brain as they go from nursing to foraging. Is it just mm-hmm. a, is it just a, a change in the gene expression at that age that triggers that? That's like, a major like thing. Puberty that, or something? Well, so, funny you mentioned puberty because the hormone that regulates that process is called juvenile hormone. So they have a peak in juvenile hormone at that transition that drives the, the, uh, the change from becoming a nurse to a forager hmm. and doing outside hive tasks. So that's another thing that they had studied, um, right, which kind of set me on the path for my future work, which is on hormones and neural circuits. Um, I didn't work on that there, but I was fascinated with that work. So, so your interest in evolution eventually you kind of... Uh, I felt like I've I've been on the same path where I read a lot of evolutionary mm-hmm. biology and psychology stuff, and then after a while, it's like, well, there's just certain aspects I can't understand without learning more about neuroscience. Yeah, that's exactly where I was. I mean, so really, the thing that set me on the path of biology was, ironically, uh, Carl Sagan's book Cosmos. So I don't know if you've ever read Cosmos, but it's it's worth reading, even though it's was written in the 70s. I had read it when I was in high school because I was into space and physics. And so, well, I should read this because he's kind of the guru of all I was this. into space and yeah. physics before <laughs> any of uh, yeah. this as well. We so, followed right, exactly. similar paths. Yeah. But then I, I read Cosmos, and there are a few chapters in there about evolution and the uh, um, evolution of, of life and evolution of man and changes in, in the history of life on Earth. And I became fascinated with it. And he described it in such a way that it kind of struck a chord with me. So then I started reading more Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Dawkins and those kinds of things and then evolutionary psychology type books too. And so I was just infatuated with evolution and history of life on Earth, going out, collecting fossils. That's one thing I would do for fun. Very kind of nerdy, <laughs> but I loved it. It was just great. Yeah. And then, uh, um, yeah. In Chicago? Well, yeah. So when I, when I got to the University of Illinois, um, I, uh, I, the fir- one of the first classes I took was the history of life. There was, there was, uh, um, the professor was a paleontologist there. And as soon as the class was over, I'd asked if I could volunteer in, in the paleontology lab. And sh- he's like, well, sure, no problem. So there were this, they had this collection of what's called the types collection. So when a species is described for the first time, uh, the specimen that is, that is used to describe that species is called a type. So from then on, every other specimen that's found will be in reference to that type. And you have to have a collection of it. And so University of Illinois has a types collection, but it was a total mess. Like everything was just all over the place and nothing was organized. So he brought me on as a volunteer to go through the types collection and put fossils in the right boxes. But then there was a, a, a postdoc in that lab who was doing research, paleontology, and was doing work on the Mazan Creek fauna. So just south of Chicago, there's uh, 250 million years ago, there was a vast inland sea that sort of uh, the shoreline was just south of Chicago. And when you have a shoreline like that, you have uh, a very rich uh, organic structure and so a lot of uh, 
there were there were fossil beds there as well as uh, coal beds. So there was a lot of coal that was being extracted, and the fossil beds were just above the coal beds. So back in the day, in the 20s and 30s, they would dig down to the coal beds just south of Chicago and um, create these giant piles right next to where the, where the mine was, where they were digging out the coal. But just because the fossils were right above the coal beds, the last layer of the big mound next to the mine would just be filled with fossils. So you could so even today you can go to those giant mounds in the you know cornfields of just south of Chicago and those mounds will be covered with fossils. And so I would go and collect fossils and it was well a blast. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> just just walking all over this giant hill in the middle of this flat expanse hmm. picking up fossils. Yeah. That's cool. cool. So, right. so you went from fossils and right. genes and, and bees to then then you went to Germany? No. So no. before that, I went to the University of Washington okay. in Seattle, where I worked with songbirds. So because I was getting, you know, I was very interested in evolution and behavior. But just like you, uh, you know, I didn't want to think of behavior as a black box. So behavior is a manifestation of neural networks. And you can't understand the evolution of behavior without thinking about how those neural networks will change over time. And, and evolve. So I started thinking about uh, the neural networks that underlie behavior and just how they're controlled. And so my honeybee research experience got me more and more interested in that. So I'd studied neuroscience at the University of Washington in Seattle, where I was working with songbirds there. Doing what with them? So, right. Songbirds are a great group of animals to study um, the neural circuits that regulate behavior because they learn their songs. So a juvenile songbird has to hear uh, a species typical song, so a song from its species, in order to make it as an adult. And it has the other thing about songbirds is that they have this set of discrete brain areas that are interconnected that regulate the song. So that's an ideal system in which you can look at how this circuit generates behavior and is and regulates the learning of the behavior what kind of birds were you working on we were working with white crown sparrows and song sparrows and the reason why we were working with those species is because they're highly seasonal so uh the birds that are live in seasonal climates temperate climates they reproduce only certain times of the year so during the spring you have an increase in the photo period you know the days get longer and this induces these animals to go into reproduct- reproductive condition. And so they start singing a lot more because they're establishing territories. The, on the territory, they, when they're singing, they're trying to attract a female and also ward off males. So it's basically, you know, like, this is my area. Get the fuck away. That's basically right. what they're trying to say with the song. <laughs> and um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, be- because it's seasonal, um, they don't do that all year. And so... Uh, my mentor there had discovered he was part of a team and several people had also contributed to this that had discovered that this neural circuit changes enormously depending upon whether they're in reproductive condition or not so it's much more robust the circuit is much bigger um, when they're in reproductive condition when they have very high levels of testosterone and then as testosterone levels decrease the the system then sort of regresses and collapses on itself. So my whole PhD was on that process. What Mm -hmm. happens when you take testosterone away 
uh, to the brain circuit that the controls singing behavior. And so they, they don't mess around with this foolish singing stuff through a lot of the rest of the year that's so right. much? It's yeah, not so much, right. So they'll sing at incredibly high rates when they're in reproductive condition, and then uh, the, the rate of singing doesn't diminish, but it goes down quite a bit. And then the other thing that changes is how, the quality of the song. So when they're in reproductive condition, the song is at very good quality. So from each song to song, every rendition, it's very what we call stereotyped. It doesn't change much. But when they're in non-reproductive condition, the song is a little bit more variable. They'll drop notes. They, they just don't care. Hmm. Yeah. So, like when you're singing in your car, you don't really care too much. Yeah, and right. Exactly. Karaoke there's no night audience, and there's some hot exactly. ladies around, and you really got to turn on your A game. When you're on, you're on the karaoke stage. You got to turn on your A game. <laughs> exactly. But in the car, you know, it's practice session. Who cares? <laughs> no one can hear. Yeah, exactly. So is that yeah. what they're doing? Is just like kind of practicing mostly the the rest do, of the, the year? rest of the year? It's not exactly clear what the function is when the rest of the year they do because this yeah. is, it, it incurs a cost of you know predators sure. and everything else. Are yeah, more. The, the, you know, I, I guess probably not so much in that particular species yeah songbirds are actually you know very versatile they don't as far as a predator avoidance the only right. things that they really have to worry about are like uh the large birds of prey certain birds of prey that that prey upon songbirds like there's not gonna be anything that's you're not gonna have like a, a you know a badger jump up a tree and right. or a bear like they, it just doesn't happen so so predators aren't as much of a concern especially with singing um when they're singing in the non-breeding season, they form these loose flocks. And so it's thought that maybe the song is, is like a contact call to, to maintain those loose flocks. And then when they're in breeding condition and they have high levels of testosterone, they're doing a lot of, well, fighting and fucking. And, right. so, they, and, and so then they don't have those loose flocks uh, anymore. And the song takes on a different role. Hmm. That's the idea. So they have different songs for like Don't Mess With Me and different songs for I Love You. Well... <laughs> not the white crowns. So this is another cool thing about songbirds. There are like there are a lot of different songbirds. In fact, um, so okay, there are about four thousand different species of songbirds. And if you just count all the mammals, there are about four thousand different species of mammals. So there are almost as many songbirds as there are mammals. So there's an incredible amount of diversity. Some songbirds, like the white crowned sparrow, only has a single song that it sings. There are regional variations that happen. So there are we call them dialects. So they're if they live in a certain area, they will have a certain variety that will be different from another area. And we know that when they move to a different area that that can lead to change in the dialect over time and that they will adapt their song to match the dialect that's nearby. No one wants to fit in. Yeah, ex- right. Yeah, you've got to fit in, right? Otherwise, you're the odd no one that The weirdo. Kid. Right, yeah. exactly. But the, there are other species of songbirds that... Um, that learn their songs as adults as well, so they can change their songs as adults, whereas, like, the white crown learns its song as a juvenile. And then there are other species that will sing uh, um, a a huge variety of songs. Like, a great example is the mockingbird. They can learn songs from other species or even, like, industrial, like, car alarms and things. They will copy car alarms. And uh, they have a huge variety of songs that they sing. So when they're singing late at night, they start singing at midnight, which is another crazy thing about mockingbirds. But it's like a huge variety. They can have, I think, upwards of 100, 100 songs. Now, we don't know if they have specific songs for stay away versus come come hither. I, I mostly, I think it serves a dual role. So hmm. the, the songs are mostly to tell other nearby males, I'm still here, leave me alone, because they will 
they will know the song of their na- neighbor and it should be there. And if they hear a, a song, so in Songbirds, for instance, uh, uh, Song Sparrows, if they hear a song that doesn't match the song of their neighbor, then they will go and investigate. But if it's a song of their neighbor, they don't care. So they will know that, you know, Mike is over here, he sings these songs, and that's fine. But if I hear someone else, I'm going to go and try to kick his ass. Because you're going to come be, to this tree, exactly. you better learn to sing the language. Word. That's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> you got to learn the hood, the hood language, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, um, right, exactly. And if you're, not speaking, if you're not speaking the language, then obviously you're an outsider. And, right. and maybe trying to hone in on the territory and try to get some of the, that sweet female action that he's already got established. So. Right, right, right. right. And, and so, and then there must be... There must be some sort of – so as they age, are they, like, getting better and, like, are they singing, like, sexier songs and, and getting mm-hmm. getting the uh, memorization down better? Yeah. And- so there are changes that happen over time, uh, over years. So they get the, – the most improvement happens in the first year. They, they can reach sexual reproduction by the first year. And in many, many species, the, that first year song is not the best – it generally takes two or three years for them to get that really good stereotype song. So they the do get a little bit better. Over teenager time. that's real horned <laughs> exactly. up and yeah. wondering why all the older guys are getting laid like crazy. Right, where their voice is still cracking. And <laughs> yeah. That's exactly yeah. what it is. It totally is. Yeah. Um, yep. So, so, it, so, are you studying them in captivity? Then we were taking these white crowns uh, from the wild. So we would go out to Eastern Washington. Uh, when they're migrating down from Alaska all the way down to Mexico. So they have this huge, long migration. And we had a period of about three weeks in which we can go out and capture them, and we would bring them into the lab where we can control the amount of light that they're exposed to as well as the hormone, the level of hormones that are, that are present because hormones are the, the things that are really driving the changes in, in the system. Because so, if you were right. to raise a chick in the lab, it would never be able to produce a song, right? If it never heard. If yeah, that's true. If it's in isolation. Now there are other species of songbirds. The zebra finch is the most commonly used one that breeds in the lab very well, and it gets raised by its parents, uh, mother and father, and it learns the the song of its father. And zebra finches have a lot of variability in the kinds of songs that they're able to sing. Um, so in a colony of zebra finches, not every male will sing the same song. There will be a fair amount of variability. And the offspring of the father, the, the, the son, will copy most of the elements of the father, even if it's in a room with full of other male zebra finches. So I worked with zebra finches when I was in Germany. And some so of them are into rap and some of yeah, them are into country. country, exactly, right. So there's, there's these subtle differences that happen, just like in humans, right? So, right. Yeah, hmm. exactly. Um, so... So how does that uh, what are the neural mechanisms that that take place then when when they're learning these they're new learning. songs? So it has to do with uh testosterone as, like you said. Well, okay. It's the role of testosterone in the in the sexual difference that we see in songbirds as well as the the learning of the song itself. It's not totally clear the the role of testosterone in regulating the seasonal change in this in the song system that's very clear there's a role for testosterone but um genetics also seems to play a big role too so this is this has just been a debate in the in this field for a long time and it's still not totally settled like the relative contribution despite the fact that um in many songbird species you have just the male that sings 
And the song system is highly reflective of that. So, it, for instance, the Zebra Finch has, has a, a very large song control system in males, but almost, I wouldn't say absent, but it's much reduced in females. And certain parts are totally indistinguishable from the rest of the brain. So if they're, if and, they're learning a lot of these songs, it, so is there then like a genetic variance in, in their ability to learn songs? Across or? species? Yeah, I, I'm certain that's the case. So it, it, it's not testosterone that drives the difference. It's going to be whatever differences in the genes that are expressed within the song control system that would allow, say, uh, a, a mockingbird to learn 100 songs, whereas a zebra finch learns just a single song. And it's, it's going to be a combination of how the circuit is organized. So um, the, the certain parts of the circuit, they, they, you, know, you have certain neurons in one part of the brain that connect to another part of the brain. And we're just starting to understand how that is organized and how certain parts of the circuit regulate the tempo of the song and other parts regulate the, the actual syllables that are produced. We, it's amazing how much work has been done on it, but we still know very little about it. And this is in a circuit that is so separate, separate apart from in, in the brain, where like this is all it does. We know it does song, and we still don't understand exactly how it's produced. Hmm. Yeah. So some of the experiments that are done that are that are uh, to to sort of tease that apart. There's there's a one guy in particular, Michael Fee, who's at MIT. He has done some some of the pioneering work on this, but a lot of other labs are doing it now too where he mounted a motorized drive onto the skull of a, of a, of a songbird, of a zebra finch. On this drive is, is a little uh, uh, electro-pipette that could record the activity of neurons, individual neurons. And um, then the pipette is attached to a computer that's within the cage that the, the, the zebra finch is sitting in. So it, this is a live awake zebra finch that's singing and he can record from individual neurons and look at the activity that they're doing as they're singing and then he'll activate the drive and lower the pipette a little bit to record from a different neuron in the same songbird uh, while it's still alive and flying around and it's hmm. almost otherworldly but that, they've been doing that for like 15 years now and that's helped give us a better picture of like what these different brain areas are doing but we still don't have the full picture for sure hmm. Yeah, you don't happen to know if testosterone makes men sing more in humans by chance. Hey, I wouldn't think so because there's so many like boy bands out there yeah, that right. seem like a, that's a lot. Uh, it's lot an more opposite estrogen, effect, estrogen. exactly. Um, I, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Silly question. Any, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's a, <laughs> it's a legitimate uh, area uh, of inquiry. It was more yeah. of a joke, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but fair enough. Um, so, so then. What was so? What was the next step for you? When did mm-hmm. you decide to um, go to uh, Germany? That, that yeah. was the next. So I finished my PhD. Right? Yeah, exactly. I finished my PhD, and then um, yeah, I always wanted to live abroad. And the the work that was being done at the lab in in Berlin. Uh, I've never been to Germany at no, all. I, I've uh, been uh, I've been like around Europe. Some and I but just, never Germany. Never Germany. Oh, and, you're missing out. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful I, place. I've yeah. heard good things. Yeah, yeah, it was so great living there. I mean, you can Germany is great. The beer is fantastic. Uh, yeah, I, the the public transit system. Living there in like an urban environment where it's walkable. Like our apartment was right above a bakery, which is amazing. And in in a, in the square, like a, a three block radius of our of our apartment, there were twelve bakeries. Which is insane, and but it's just Germany. They love their bakeries and they love bread, and 
and and you know oh it's just that was so great but like um the yeah the research was just the same as it is here like the lab uh, i was the only native english speaker but you're working with like educated germans and other international people and so the the language of the lab is all in english and mm -hmm. i ended up doing an awful lot of like manuscript editing so if any time anyone had to write something i i swear i, I edited a manuscript like once a week so mm -hmm. someone would write a paper and Chris, can you please look at give this? It to the, <laughs> give it to the give English, it to the native yeah. English speaker. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I'd have to change all the British things to to American things. And so, what were you doing there? So, and more songbird work, um, but this time again, working with zebra finches. Mm. And I was trying to see what role testosterone was playing with expression of certain genes in developing the the song control system in zebra finches. And the gene that we were primarily focused on is called FOXP2. This is a gene... I've heard of this You gene. probably have, because no. it's actually most well-known for its role in language production in humans. Hmm. So there's a family in the UK who has a mutation in this gene, and they have some severe language production and comprehension uh, deficits. And it seems to be pretty specific to just language. And it turns out that it... it um, the mutation has an effect on, on a variety of things, because this gene is actually important for developing... Um, certain parts of the body, like uh, below the brain, as well as parts of the brain. And in particular, it's really important for the basal ganglia. So the basal ganglia is a very important part for stereotype behavior, with, like repeated fixed action patterns. So when you, uh, someone who's really good at swinging a baseball bat and they, they don't even think about it, they're using their basal ganglia primarily. So with lots of practice, and they don't have to think about the swing. They just can do it. And that's the basal ganglia. It's Speech kind of is just like, that. like a if this, then that Absolutely. Kind of response yes. is what a There's a stimulus that comes in, and, and the fixed action pattern that just gets released, and you don't even need to think about it. And speech production is like that, and the basal ganglia has parts that are important for speech. So this mutation affects their basal ganglia. Now, the song control system uh, has a, a big part of it is basically the songbird basal ganglia. And the mutation, uh, so this gene is also highly expressed in this part of the brain, the basal ganglia part of the brain that's part of the song control system. And what my work had shown is that there are some very discrete changes in the expression of this gene depending upon how old the neurons are that are there in this brain area. And it changes quite a bit relative to the surrounding area, the rest of the basal ganglia. So this language part of the brain in, well, to call it language, the song part of the brain in zebra finches, the, the regulation of FOXP2 there is very different from the rest of the brain. So that was one of my main projects there when I was in Germany. What happens when they get, like, much older? Like, like mm -hmm. what's the lifespan of, of uh So we had one zebra, zebra finch uh, that was over, we had to estimate it as 3,000 days old. How many years is that? That's like eight years or something. Mm -hmm. they, don't live, they don't live much longer than that. They actually start to look like, pretty raggedy and so zebra finches they'll reach sexual maturity within 90 days and um it's very fast so that's one of the reasons why people use zebra finches in the lab whereas most songbirds they need at least one year to reach sexual reproduction now um so you can do a lot more experiments with zebra finches the um uh but getting back to what we we're talking about like the juveniles and how they sing um there's a lot of evidence that had shown that juveniles, even though they're at sexual reproduction at 90 days old, their song is pretty terrible. 
And so we were repeating some of those same experiments, but I was also looking at FOXP2 expression. And it turns out that FOXP2 expression, even though they're reaching sexual maturity, the expression was still quite high in this brain area relative to other adults. So their expression hadn't fully decreased. And this gene seems to promote um, plasticity of neurons, the, the neuron shape um, in the basal ganglia. And so if it's relatively high, these neurons are a lot more plastic and a lot more labile, and their song isn't fully stereotyped. Better for learning, yeah. worse for producing. Yeah, exactly. Right, yes. And so when they're, still, when they're learning the song, they have to have a lot of this gene present. And when they're done learning the song and they want to stereotype the, the, the circuit, th this gene is at least part of it where it will decrease part of the answer, that it will decrease in expression, and then the song is much more stable. Kind of hones in. Like if, you, exactly. if you're uh, swinging a baseball bat, mm -hmm. you're you're whiffing a lot of times, and then uh, and then eventually, as you get it down, mm -hmm. the the those parts get stronger in your brain that right. that uh, allow you to hit the ball. Right. And um, yes. And and the parts, um, the the parts that hopefully are missing and not being aren't being used as much, and they kind of. So the, there's the reward component to it. Right. This is another thing. So another part of the basal ganglia is that there's dopamine input into the basal ganglia, and so it's thought that, you know. If you if you perform say a song or you swing a bat very well and it it's a satis you hit a home run or you si or you sing the song well you'll get a dopamine reward and that may reinforce those neurons that were part of generating that that action pattern. Hmm. Now, Cause how does FOXP2 fit into that? It's not entirely clear. Although there is a relationship between dopamine signaling and FOXP2, hmm. um, yeah. Because dop dopamine originally is the reward, doesn't it mm -hmm. move to like as a, a more of a motivator after after a while? To then like once you originally you sing a song, mm -hmm. you it's a successful song, you get laid or whatever, and you have this mm -hmm. dopamine right. response. But then after a while, once you just see the potential to sing this song, there's a lady around. Then there's the dopamine response. And it's like, oh, I know what to do here. When um, you sing the song. I, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. I know that there's more dopamine. It, I know no, that no, no. mechanism sometimes works yeah. in certain areas of the brain in that fashion. There but. is more dopamine that gets released when male songbirds are singing to a female. So just presence of having a female nearby, having an audience, there, there's a greater do release of dopamine. Okay. Yeah. And, and the song is much more stereotyped when they sing versus when they're um, alone. That's called undirected singing. So what, what happens when they get much older in life mm -hmm. do they do they start like forgetting songs and does, does their throat go out yeah when they get study? much older like the song we know that these old guys they the song gets sped up a little bit a little bit more truncated they may drop certain syllables at the end and it can be sort of crummy sounding there's change that happens, especially when they're really old. When their feathers are like starting to fall out and they're not replacing with new feathers and they really, they really look, kind of look like old men, like the, yeah. the song also seems to suffer a little bit. But they actually can perform a good song for many years. Hmm. Yeah. It's kind of like people, too, I guess, to some degree. I mean, well, at least like, uh, you know, Frank, Frank Sinatra sang very well up into his, what, 70s. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, right. Yeah. But he still had the prime and yeah. And then, uh, right. <laughs> um so so you did that for how long? That Were was three years in three Germany. Years? Okay. And then um 
then you came here? Yeah, my time ended in Germany. And at that point, I came back to the United States. And I wanted to transition to a different system. So I joined the Scripps Research Institute. I'm at Holly Klein's lab in, uh, here. And we, I'm still doing hormones and brain circuit development, but we use tadpoles to do that. So it's very different from songbirds. There's not a whole lot of singing going on. Um, but it's, it's more developmentally focused. So the, the, with the, the species that we work with is called Xenopus lavis, or the African clawed frog. And the, the advantages of using the clawed frog is, I mean, there are quite a few. We can take one male and one female. Put the, you, you got to see this in the tour. Yeah, which is I, got, pretty great. I got the tour. <laughs> yeah. I, got, I got to see it's where the A little magic bit of romance. Happens. Yeah, so the male, and put one, one male and one female in, in a single tank, an aquarium tank. It's like, I think, 20-gallon tank or something like that. I don't know. I'm not an Aquarius, so I have no idea. So, um, but yeah, so we put the male and female together. We inject them with uh, a gonadotropin-stimulating hormone, uh, a corticotropin, and it's the same hormone that gets increased when women are pregnant. Um, so uh, this, though, has the reaction for, to get them into reproductive condition. So then they start mating when they're injected with this hormone. Um, yeah, you were telling me that they used to, um, that was like the early pregnancy test. That's right, yeah. So, right, it was this uh, uh, scientist from uh, England, Lancelot Hogben was his name, Lancelot Hogben. He, was, he had moved from England to South Africa and was exploring the different animals there. This was like in the teens, I believe, 1910 or something. And started working with this African clawed frog. And he discovered that if you inject the urine of a woman who is suspected to be pregnant, and if she is pregnant, into a female African clawed frog, the, the clawed, the, this frog will lay eggs the next day, within 18 hours. And so it's a quick pregnancy test uh, that, you know, it's, it's either, you know, a thousand eggs or no eggs. And then, therefore, you would know that if you're pregnant or not. And How did he decide that that was <laughs> called? He was just experimenting with Honestly, lots of different... Kinds I'm not, of pee on a frog. Yeah, I know he was exploring the, the, the hormones that were involved, and I don't know the details of how he came across connecting the two. Um, I, th- I think he was working on the biology of the frogs, actually. And, and, and at the time, they knew that there was this hormone that, that, uh, that would be elevated in, in women when they're pregnant, and it happens very quickly. In fact, that's what the home pregnancy t- test does. It still does the same thing. It just uses an immunotechnique to detect how much hormone is there. So, so now you're right. peeing on a stick rather than a Instead frog. Instead of peeing on a frog, a, yes, exactly. It's a, a little, little cleaner. Yeah, a little cleaner. I'm not much cleaner, though. <laughs> <laughs> At least you don't have to handle the frog. Right. You still get pee everywhere. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, um, yeah, so this guy, Lancelot Hugman, was doing this. He came back to the U.K. with this whole technique, and he had this whole colony of, uh, of these African clawed frogs. He was, in order to fund his research, he was doing these pregnancy tests on the side he was apparently he had kept all these frogs in like some crypt in some deserted church in london and um and it was very kind of shady and like uh, totally on the side uh, under the table type work where women who they wouldn't they would hear that he had this technique to know if if like they were pregnant or not they'd come to him and and they would pay some money and he would fund his research doing this on the side with uh, doing the pregnancy test but it became very well known pretty quickly, and for 30 years, cl- clinics the world over had colonies of Xenopus lavis just for this purpose, to do pregnancy tests. It was known as the hog bend test. Uh, 
Hmm. Yeah, and it, up until the 60s when they developed the immunoassay that we now use, that's the, the standard technique for the home pregnancy test, uh, that was the original test, the, uh, the, uh, the hog bend test. So you guys just have um, bags of, uh, of pregnant woman urine <laughs> yeah, that, you, that you put right. into. <laughs> and, and anytime <laughs> anyone gets pregnant in the, in the building, we're yeah. like, oh, can wait, you, wait, can wait. you just quick yeah. pee in this exactly. uh, For the next week, we need uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> squat over the aquarium. Oh, God, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah, uh, I wish it was that easy. HR keeps on telling <laughs> us to quit, but it's right. just so efficient. Uh, it's, it's much more efficient than, like, yeah. <laughs> No, the um, what we do, um, it, it comes uh, uh, concentrated and isolated, and we reconstitute it and we just inject it. It's 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 uh, it's not nearly as exciting as I think back when Lancelot Hogben <laughs> was doing it. <laughs> right. So we do that, and then we get a quick mating, and then we have thousands of tadpoles all synchronized in age. The, the tadpoles. I like that the yeah. guy too just like hangs <laughs> on. Yeah, he's like a real cuddly fella. He's very cuddly. That's me. Right. Yeah. That's me. It just takes about thirty seconds to get the job done, and but, then I just kind of latch yeah. on afterwards and just hold on. For, yeah. for a while. That's exactly what they do. Oh god, it's and and when we go in and are scooping out the the frog out the next day, um, they will still be attached, yeah. and we have to force them apart. It's actually kind of sad. Oh, like we're breaking up the whole cuddle moment. Is that like a an adaptive like sperm competition sort of thing? That Honestly, have, I'm not sure. I think so. Uh, but the 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 mate uh, guarding, the, yeah, mate guarding perhaps. But the the eggs get released so quickly. The other thing is that this is maybe somewhat artificial because we're injecting this hormone. So it, it might be um, a hyper behavioral moment. Um, right. So so they're just continuously in this sort of heightened sense of a reproduction. So I don't know how natural it is that they, they hold on for dear life for 18 hours. <laughs> Normally they're not that horny no. out I, in the I, wild. I, because... I, honestly, I'm not sure. I right. don't know. Hmm. Um, I, I the you know that's the funny thing about working with like uh, a standard lab species is that we think of them as tadpole generators. Right, right. We don't necessarily think of a behavior. Right, right. Yeah, you're you're, you're right. not observing that particular exactly. behavior. Yes. You're just trying to get those tadpoles. Exactly. Yes. Right. And there are people that would know the answer to that. Right. I, right. Just, I don't know. I understand. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, pretty sad. Um. So so you get these tadpoles. Right. And then what are you... Right. So we're doing it with tadpoles and because they have this external development. You know, the eggs are laid in the water. They get fertilized in the water. So you can watch the development happen in real time. So we in our lab are interested in how the visual system gets wired up in the brain. So we wait for the tadpoles to get it to the point where they actually have a visible brain. Albino tadpoles, Yeah, we're too. working with albino tadpoles. Right. And that's, that's part of the reason. So these... these the species or this variety has, is entirely albino. The, the the adults, I encourage anyone to look up albino Xenopus lavis. They're they're sort of they look like frogs from hell because they look like these big bloated demon frogs with these big claws in the front of them with red eyes and sort of this weird yellow color skin. They're they're very weird looking. But the tadpoles are albino as well, so their skin is transparent and we can see the brain inside as it's developing. And so then we can watch. We we use a variety of genetic techniques so uh, to label individual neurons or groups of neurons uh, with uh, green fluorescent protein, which is this protein that glows under certain wavelength conditions. And then we can image them and observe how the neurons change their structure over time. So you can take a live tadpole, put it underneath a microscope, image that neuron, 
do something funky to it. Shoot some lasers at shoot, it. Right. You shoot lasers at it, or in my case, I'll give them some hormones or try to block hormones, and then see how the um, the uh, the neurons change in shape over time. And so that's what a really powerful technique because you can look at the same exact neuron and see how it changes due to stimuli or, say, hormones or lasers, if that's what you're... <laughs> we, we do visual stimulation. So I just like thing. that you have lasers. Right. We, do, we, we have all you kinds have of lasers. frog lasers. lasers. Well, well, I didn't tell you about this before, but we have what's called the, the, the disco um, treatment. So we have, uh, in order to visually stimulate the tadpoles, we have these little black boxes that have a series of green LEDs at the top of it. And the LEDs just go, like, blink on and off, like, in a line. And it looks like a disco inside, so we call it the disco. So we give them the disco treatment um, to, to give them visual stimulus. Wild. Yeah, yeah. So, like, when, when we want to see, like, uh, what does is, what is visual stimulation do to how... Uh, what does it do to how the brain circuit is developing? Um, because they can see, they, you know, they have eyes, they're, they're connected to these brain areas that we're interested in. How does the visual stimulus change the shape of those neurons? And versus when they're, say, held in a black box with no visual stimulus, no disco. Hmm. So we don't play, uh, you know, Saturday Night Fever, though. That the, 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 the audible part of it is not necessary. Out. Yeah. And they don't wear bell bottoms. So there's that. But, um, yeah, so we do even just visual stimulus to, and then see how those neurons change over time. Which is pretty cool. So what uh, what happens? What are you what are you finding? So my work in particular, um, yeah, yeah. So um, I all right. So I'm working. I'm a hormone guy. Um, that's my new wrinkle that I'm bringing to the Klein Lab, and I'm looking at how thyroid hormone affects the development of these neurons over time. So in thyroid, the reason why I'm using thyroid hormone is because in frogs, thyroid hormone is the key mediator for uh, metamorphosis. So in order for a tadpole to become a frog, they have to have a surge in thyroid hormone. But the tadpole is still sensitive to thyroid hormone. They have all the receptors that are expressed early on. They just don't have the hormone that's necessary. So if you add in thyroid hormone, you can change and induce a metamorphic-like response throughout the whole tadpole, but including the, uh, the, the, uh, the brain. And so I'm looking at what are the cellular changes that happen and the molecular changes that happen when you interfere with thyroid hormone signaling. So you give them, um, so, so the thyroid hormone, it's just like, um, learning juice. <laughs> learning juice. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, oh my of, God. of ways to put it. That's, I mean, this isn't, this isn't fifth graders listening no. to this, but it is. Like, so, so a thyroid, thyroid hormone is enabling all of this kind of flexibility yeah, and, and kind of it's, Okay, so thyroid hormone, and I didn't tell you this before, so I can understand why you would call this learning I, I, I mean, <laughs> um, So it's... When I just ha- really wanted to say learning, learning juice. Learning juice. Uh, I mm. wish we had... I, well, I could go for some learning I juice know. right now, actually. I, I need some. Yeah. Had I had a little more <laughs> learning juice you before that, I probably would have asked some, uh, some less ridiculous question. No, no, no. Nothing ridiculous about that. Uh, no, because well, I, know, I know what you mean by that. Like, is it... Is it causing the brain to change? And it is. It's not learning, though, obviously, because it's not. Uh, okay. It's kind of stimulating growth. Though, it is. In- it is stimulating growth in the brain. And it happens in humans, too. So um, humans are dependent upon thyroid hormone from the mother. And if the mother is hypothyroidic, so she doesn't have high enough levels of thyroid hormone, 
the babies are born as they're called cretins. So that's what cretinism is. So they have small brains, uh, mental retardation, um, all kinds of uh, alterations in their behavior. And it's because thyroid hormone is necessary in utero uh, in order for them to have sufficient levels of neurogenesis that's happening, so new neurons dividing in the brain, in order for the neurons to migrate away from where they're born into the proper brain areas and for them to have the proper um, arbors. So we can use the tadpole as a way of looking at all these things in real time. So that's the opportunity to look at what happens when you mess with thyroid hormone and how does it affect these individual neurons and how they change over time. So that's what my project is focused on because it's so important for proper brain development in, in humans and, and all vertebrates, actually. Right. So, so because learning, I guess, is more about like zeroing in. But, well, but learning you would define as um, associating one stimulus with another, right? right. So, or if you want to call it, talk about like a, a classical conditioning paradigm, uh, that's obvious learning. This isn't a st- stimulus-driven thing. This is a developmental process. Right. And it's, it, it, and is it kind of is setting necessary. up the it is setting up. structure It is setting up the learning. structures for learning, absolutely. Okay. And without it, and that's why cretinism is such a terrible thing, without adequate levels of thyroid hormone, the brain is too small, there aren't enough neurons, the branches aren't all sta- established, and they have severe mental retardation. You know, I was, uh, I was listening to this lecture on uh, on stress, and I, I'm going to feel like a fool if, it, if he wasn't talking about the th- thyroid, but I believe it was the thyroid. Mm-hmm. There's this rather, like, dark period in history where mm-hmm. where um, uh, it, it was... He, he was kind of using this more of an example of, of uh, what happens with... Um, uh, with poverty in children, but mm-hmm. in like uh, I don't know if this is like the early 1900s or so. It was it was they had radiation at this time. So, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, they had uh, basically the only um, the only babies that they were normally doing autopsies on were uh, were poor babies mm. because uh, you know the wealthy would bury their children and mm-hmm. everything else and and so uh, but but poor babies and poor children have different um development because mm-hmm. they aren't getting proper nutrients and all this well right so then when they started studying sudden infant death syndrome mm-hmm. now all of a sudden this wasn't um this wasn't based so much on income or mm-hmm. any you know so then, then you had these wealthy babies all of a sudden having this problem and 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 so they're comparing um this sudden infant de- the brains of of these babies with sudden in- infant death syndrome to uh these what they thought were regular oh. uh, n- not realizing that sure. they were all not factoring that in that they were all poor people's right um I- infants and and, th- and then they were looking for differences uh. and what they found was that um these these sudden infant de- death um, syndrome seem to have a larger thyroid hmm. um, mm-hmm. be, because the malnutrition in what they thought was regular mm-hmm. infants had a smaller thyroid. That wouldn't surprise and, me. And and so 
So then what they did was they're like, oh, we figured it out. It's enlarged thyroid <laughs> that awesome. is causing this. So you can come in and get testing. And so only then only wealthy people were able to afford this testing. Uh, and then they were, they, they were the only ones that were able to afford the treatment for that, sure. which is they're like, well, we know how to do that. We can shrink the thyroid oh my God. with radiation. That's right. You can use uh, irradiated iodine. Iodine is an essential component to making thyroid hormone. And if you have an overactive thyroid gland, one thing that you can do is treat with radioactive iodine, which will kill off cells because it will accumulate in the thyroid gland and kill off cells there to reduce the size. But, like, obviously there was nothing wrong with those kids, Nothing which is wrong. No, and, and, then, and, 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 and now they're reducing. inhibiting their yeah. ability their, uh, to grow. And right. Everything. And it's a very risky treatment, too. I mean, it does. <laughs> They, yeah, I mean, it, so people do this with pets. I think they also may do it with humans, although mostly it's managed with medication. That's insane. I, yeah, I mean, it just shows like, <laughs> crazy. yeah, not thinking of the seeing the big picture and how it can lead to these, these bizarre conclusions and treatments. Um, right, it's not entirely surprising, but um, especially because with SIDS, if you think about it, like, so if if there was a poor person who uh, even at that time, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, when SIDS was becoming um, a little bit more of an issue on the radar screen, um, they, those deaths wouldn't necessarily be investigated because they, you know, the wealthy people would be able to say, oh, my poor child, look, uh, this is a tragedy. I want to figure out what this is like for other, other uh, parents so they don't have to go through this, whereas a poor person wouldn't have that um, avenue necessarily. And, right. and so you could see why they would... Uh, see these differences that have our entirely everything to do with nutrition and probably in utero uh, um, development uh, and nothing to do with the thyroid. Right, thyroid. right. God. It is horrifying. Yes, right. Um, so, science. so back to your work. Yes, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so what? So what's the? Um, if, if you're not adding this, what, what's the natural progression mm -hmm. of, of the thyroid in, sure. in um, a regular... Right. Uh, so thyroid hormone uh, normally will peak between two and four months of age for the species that we work with to start to induce metamorphosis. So, uh, so it's, a, it's like a four-month process, and then they'll go through peak metamorphosis, which will only take a week to two weeks. So they will transition from what you would think is a tadpole with like little legs there to basically a frog with no tail, um, almost the same exact size uh, body length wise, just no tail and much bigger limbs within about a week to two weeks. So it, it does undergo a pretty rapid progression, but it takes about two to four months to get there. I am studying it in these very young tadpoles because I don't want to wait four months before I can start doing my experiments. And also because they're still very acutely sensitive to that thyroid hormone. And because I've done other experiments where I've inhibited thyroid hormone, even at these early ages, and I see a, a negative effect of inhibiting thyroid hormone signaling. So I know, I know that thyroid hormone, even though it's very, very low, it's still important for um, brain development, even at these very early stages. What happens when you inhibit it? So there are fewer neurons that are born in the brain, and they don't grow as fast. How are, you, how are you inhibiting? I use a drug called MMI, methamazole. And ironically, this is so I started using this drug. It's a widely used drug for these kinds of experiments, but it's also used in clinical situations. So, about a year into my experiments here, I, um, uh, my cat ended up getting hyperthyroidism. 
So he had an overactive thyroid gland, and he was prescribed methamazole, the same exact drug I was giving to the tadpoles. So it's, it's the exact same thing. So it's widely used. Um, so th- in order to knock down his active thyroid hormone, I had to give him the same drug that I was giving the, the tadpoles to block hmm. their thyroid hormone. Yeah. And so what happens when you do it when they don't need? Uh, when they don't need um, thyroid hormone. It, it, when it's not overactive, when you're not oh. like using it to balance so out. So if, if you it? were to do that, say, in a cat that has a normal level of thyroid hormone, and you were to knock it down, you would see changes in uh, metabolism uh, and weight gain. Uh, so they would gain a lot of weight if you knock it down too much. And, um, and how much food they eat. So they, ironically, I think they eat less when they have low levels of thyroid hormone. But they, they maintain a lot more of the weight. Because thyroid hormone is an important regulator for, for overall metabolism throughout the body in, in an adult animal. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's tightly linked to food as well and nutrition, which is partly probably how it has the mechanism that it does on the brain as well. So I've been exploring that a little bit, like the relationship between feeding and thyroid hormone um, and, and how it regulates the brain circuits that we study in tadpoles. And what about differences in uh, the amount of stimulus in an environment? Is is that naturally creating more of like a more thyroid hormone? Yeah, I don't think so. These mechanisms are pretty endogenous. Kind of the only thing that I think that really affects it is body weight and and feeding. Hmm. Those are the only things that really are going to uh, influence those external factors that would influence um, the uh, the thyroid gland. They're pretty. There's there's also a circadian component, so it is influenced by day length too, but that's just the amount of secretion. So it, it gets secre- a lot of the glands are secreted on a circadian cycle, and thyroid hormone is one of those. So so what um what what's kind of the the goal of mm-hmm. of your research at the right. moment? So okay, I'm setting the baseline looking at how thyroid hormone regulates the development of the brain and all these different aspects of how these neurons respond to thyroid hormone and changes in thyroid hormone signaling. The reason why I'm setting that baseline is because the the ultimate goal is to then use this as a model system for exploring how industrial and consumer um chemicals and uh, that are thought to affect thyroid hormone signaling, how they affect brain development, essentially. And so I'm using this as an animal model for studying that phenomenon. Um, and so, yeah, I've got the baseline of how does the, the thyroid hormone affect neurogenesis, the branching of the neurons, the differentiation of neurons, how they migrate, how it changes the overall morphology of the brain. And then I can use this then as a baseline for looking at how these compounds affect uh, brain development. And so, so what kind of what uh, you're you're showing? I don't <laughs> want to get bit. you in yeah, trouble. Uh, I I can't talk <laughs> about too much, but I can talk about um, a little bit. And actually, there's some interesting stories. So I'm looking at a number of compounds, and none of this is is a uh, is a big surprise because um, the list that I have is from the literature. So there's already a lot of publications out on these compounds. Uh, BPA is one of them. Bisphenol A. This is the, the the thing that's in like the water bottles that everyone is worried about. The plastic water bottles, um, but it's it's actually used as a pl- plastic strengthener, and it's in all kinds of plastics. Um, also, it's actually in really high levels on the thermo uh, sensitive uh, receipt tape for um, that you get at like at the grocery store. So all of that the the it prints out by 
imprinting heat onto the paper and it puts the black ink that way. It's not actually like printing ink. It's just like heating up the paper. And there are very high levels of BPA on that. And um, there was a study that was just done recently showing that people who are cashiers who handle these papers all the time, they have very high levels of BPA in their blood, blood uh, serum levels. Really? And, yeah. and no, one, no one quite knows exactly what that's doing? No. That's, that's kind of what you're trying yeah, to figure out. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. But actually, BPA has been very thoroughly studied. It's, it seems to be an, est- an estrogen analog. In fact, BPA was originally synthesized by a pharmaceutical company in the goal of finding compounds that are similar to estrogen to, to help deal, um, to, to develop a drug to give to women who are having problems during pregnancy. So this was supposed to be an estrogen analog to help manage like early onset contractions and those kinds of things. So if you provide estrogens, from what I understand, it will end up subsiding the, uh, some of those, those, uh, those contractions. So this was like in the 20s when they were synthesizing these compounds. And they developed BPA because of that. That was the goal, to develop a compound that is similar to estrogen. And they found other compounds that were better. So it was just kind of put on the shelf. But someone else figured out that, oh, these compounds are really good at hardening plastics. <laughs> so let's synthesize billions of pounds of, of this compound per year and mm-hmm. embed it in plastics and surround ourselves with plastic. And right, and I'm sure there would be no problems at all with estrogens. Uh, right, but of course... There are, and I'm, it actually also seems to interact with thyroid hormone receptors, too. So I'm looking at that as well. There's another compound I can talk about a little bit. It's called triclosan. Um, it is an antimicrobial, antifungal agent that is widely used in consumer products. I showed you a slide with, with all the products that are on there. It's yeah. kind of dumbfounding how many are, are there. Um, anyone can a lot of soaps up. and things It's like a lot that. of soaps. It's found in cosmetics. Um, it's found in, uh, so like if there are antimicrobial kitchenware, like cutting boards and things, uh, generally that, that'll have high levels of triclosan that are embedded in it to prevent stuff from growing. Um, there are these bio-free clothing, like t-shirts that are supposed to reduce smells and have things growing on it. Many of those have triclosan embedded into the fabrics, um, the uh, and then also toothpaste. So not all toothpaste. In fact, it's the one that's most widely known. In fact, I think it's the only one in the states that has triclosan in is Colgate Total. So it's called Total because it has triclosan in it. <laughs> so it's in the toothpaste, and you can put it. They in don't your mouth listen and, to this podcast. No, I it's, hope it's not. Fine. <laughs> no, okay. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Right. So this, I didn't tell you this, but this was a really interesting story. So this is a little bit of a new field for me. I'm a devel- I'm a hormonal. I'm a neuroendocrinologist, developmental neurobiologist by training. I look at the mechanisms of how hormones regulate the development and activity of brain circuits. But now I'm going into this field of neurotoxicology. So how do these compounds affect brain development? And, and you know, it's an obvious leap that you would take because it's, I'm trying to apply my research in some sort of direct translational way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I'm not just uh, ivory tower, you know, exploring these things where they have no relevance whatsoever. So um, I went to the Society of Toxicology annual meeting with, the, uh, with my results. And the, these two individuals... Two ladies had shown up, and they were just spending a very long time on my poster. And it was the thing that was crazy about it is that they were sort of playing bad cop, good cop. So there was one who was really hostile towards every little detail on my poster, and another one who was just like trying to be very friendly and trying to get information and like, what do I think this means and all of this. 
And then, you know, we had a good conversation, though. I, yeah, I'm respectful. I'm not going to. But the one who was being very hostile, I just, like, I don't know what the deal with her, what, right. what her problem was. But she was like, for instance, she's like, well, why would you use albinos? Why would you do this with albinos? And I just had to explain to her, like, she obviously, like, knew a little bit about tadpoles and, and like, toxicology. But she had no idea the kind of uh, neuroscience type work that I'm doing. Right. So and she, it was just, but she was just questioning every little thing, every little detail that I had picked. But they'd handed me their card, and they were from Colgate Palmolive. Ah, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Crazy. So it's so that they can say, "Well, sure, it's bad for albinos." Right. Yeah. Exactly. But everyone yeah. else, it's like, fine. Yeah, we'll, right. we'll, we'll put that warning, <laughs> we'll put the on, warning the... on there. <laughs> Some freaky albino. You should probably uh, use this. Yes. So, right. so this is possibly inhibiting thyroid. Well, okay. So my data. Seems it's to stopping indicate, the brain juice. Yeah, it's stopping the learning juice. <laughs> the learning juice. Yeah. So right. So and I still have to do. These are preliminary data, so there are still things that need to be worked out. But my my the indication is that uh, um, I, I'm still following up on one more experiment. I showed you mm-hmm. what triclosan did to a group of my tadpoles because I was using higher doses and it killed them all. Um, but uh, so I have to replicate it. Uh, but it indicates that it's inhibiting the role of thyroid hormone. So if I add in thyroid hormone to induce these changes in the presence of triclosan, it's blocking the changes. So mm-hmm. it, it seems to be acting as an antagonist against thyroid hormone. So, you know, if you think about these hormone systems, there's a receptor, which is sort of a lock, and then the, the hormone is the key. And if you have something that's kind of like the right key, but not exactly the right key, it will bind into the lock, but not activate the lock. Mm. And so that's competitive antagonism, and that might be one mechanism that it seems to be working. And that's not good. So, like I had said, thyroid, you need proper thyroid hormone signaling for brain development. If there is a compound... Clogging your, up the locks. Yes, clogging up the locks. Um, the keys can't get in. Yes, exactly. Ah, that's, that is the potential issue. What about the opposite? Is there a way once... Because this all of this... Um, all of this neurogenesis stuff kind of uh, stops at a certain age, mm-hmm. kind of anyway. Right? right? Is is there mm-hmm. a way to to squirt some more learning juice learning back juice in there? <laughs> so, but what would that do? Right? Um, like post natally, you're talking about, right? Like, so if if this is happening in uh, utero, like, like right now, I, right. I'm I'm 35. I feel like I could I could use <laughs> a little use learning, learning juice. juice. Yeah. Well, in your case, no. I mean, you're a lost cause. Uh, though, right? No, yeah. no, no, no. Um, That's uh, what my parents told yeah, me. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I told you that a long time ago, right? Yeah. Right. Nah, I, I got told the same thing. Um, the uh, uh, Will show up. <laughs> exactly. So, right. You said neurogenesis ends early on, and yeah. that's very true. So, in, a, in, in humans, it seems like neurogenesis is, is most happening in utero. Okay, right. When thyroid hormone is really important, and and also to some degree postnatally up until about eighteen months of age. Mm. So neurogenesis for the rest of the brain seems to end at about eighteen months of age. In humans, there are two areas of the brain that continue to undergo neurogenesis throughout an entire lifespan, and one is the hippocampus, which is really important for learning and memory. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've talked about on your podcast before. Um, And then the other part is the olfactory bulb, which um, 
isn't so important for humans, but it, in all mammals, it undergoes neurogenesis. So yeah, it does. Uh, it does it a lot during uh, when women are pregnant. Yeah, right. So there are changes that happen during pregnancy. You right. gotta, gotta smell that baby. <laughs> exactly. you, you need a you need a new set of sniffers. <laughs> new set of sniffers for, uh, smelling that baby. Exactly. Or, so you know which one's yours. Know which one's yours, right? Yeah. Is this my baby? Oh yeah, that's <laughs> they had peas last night. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, well, very cool. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, or as we wrap up. What is the oh? It, and by the way, was mm-hmm. it, was there anything else about this work that that uh, we didn't I cover that you so. needed to mention? No, cool. I think that's the well, conversation. Well, let's get into uh, what's the um, charity of the week, the nonprofit of of the week. Mm-hmm. So, well, I, the one I choose is the National Center for Science Education. They're in uh, San Francisco. You can find them on the web. I think it's ncse.org. I'm sure you'll put a link. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So great, and. Um, uh, they're an organization dedicated to the adequate teaching of, of uh, science in public schools. And th- their, their major issue, the thing that got them started was evolution in public schools. So with my background and interest of evolution, uh, I was actually heavily involved with their work um, when I was living in Seattle. And then um, uh, th- lately what they've taken What kind of stuff on- did you do? Oh, well, so um, when I was in Seattle, the, at the time the whole intelligent design and evolution debate was really percolating. It was becoming a very big issue. Um, the group that was most heavily invested in intelligent design is called the Discovery Institute, and they're based in Seattle. It's a think tank, and one of their big things was intelligent design. So they would fund these you know, uh, people with PhDs, not necessarily in biology, to write books about how bad, terrible evolution is and how many holes there are, and the main goal was really to take some of the same basic arguments in creationism, but to strip away the religious part of it. That's basically what intelligent design is. It's like all the God stuff, you know, Earth is only 6,000 years old and there was Noah's Ark and all that stuff. Of course, we're not going to talk about that because that's clearly religion. Yeah. But we can say... We didn't get perfect out of nowhere. It, it, right, exactly. <laughs> so there had to be this intelligent designer to, you know, how can you have a mouse trap? evolve piece by piece that's the example they love to use so like a a, a mousetrap with only two or three of its parts is uh, you know not functional and so there are these molecular machines of course you got to use the word machine not you know some complex they don't Uh, mention that that mousetraps were kind of uh, evolved over time and and tweaked and (laughs) and a a lot of trial and error trial and error right of course that yes and that you can get somewhat of a basic functional mousetrap so so there were guys that had it's stupid to talk about the evolution of mousetraps right, right. because it doesn't work by right, right, natural right, right. selection and evolution anyway. Why are we talking yes. about mousetraps? Right. <laughs> but, but that was the example they used because you, yeah, yeah. you have to have something that people can understand. Everyone knows what a mousetrap is. Yeah. And you can talk, and it's, there are only five basic parts. So you can easily talk about, oh, well, if we take this part away, it doesn't work. But then some guy had, had spent some time taking apart mousetraps and getting it to work in a sort of basic level even without some of these parts. So even then, you can still build up a molecular machine with, you know, over time, you don't have to have it all de novo. And the molecular machines are not mousetraps anyway, so... Well, I, I still think you can't have springs without Jesus, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, uh, well, thank you so much yeah. for joining me. I appreciate your time. Very in- thanks for the tour of the lab. Of course. It's super cool. And everybody, make sure and go to the herewearepodcast.com website and check out the National Center for Science Education and the uh, link to 
uh, Chris Thompson's work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for rating, sharing, writing reviews, all that good stuff. Appreciate it. It helps me out to no end. Tune in next week. Really cool episode with the author of Social, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect. Super awesome book. Uh, pretty darn popular. Is a real good get for me. Um, uh, I think this, this is a real, very important episode uh, coming up in his book, Social is Fantastic. You should go and get it right now, and then you'll be a little more informed when you listen into the interview uh, next week. Um, uh, no big deal, but uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend his book. Fantastic. Matthew Lieberman, uh, social cognitive neuroscientist, and uh, talking about their neural basis of automatic and controlled social cognition and affect, uh, neural basis of personality, neural basis of social perception, and uh, sense of self. Really, uh, all that sounds uh, super complicated, uh, right? Uh, perhaps, but uh, it, it, uh, he, he breaks things down quite nicely. And it's all about, uh, this, is, this is the point of the show. This is what makes us uh, who we are. That's what he's writing all about. So I think you guys are really going to dig it. And I'll talk with you next week. Kyle Ayers, I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it, and here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, <laughs> he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> 
Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh, my 